the Jewish views on the Ajax Parade 2016, remembering Jewish armed forces past and present. Infertility, Hana are getting ready to host their annual December, which means you could help raise awareness. And we speak to artist Rebecca Frankel-Rodowski about her forthcoming exhibition. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish News this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. More than 1,000 Jewish veterans, many of whom had seen service during the Second World War, marched down Whitehall to the Cenotaph, led by the band of the Coldstream Guards, on a very cold Remembrance Sunday. They were joined by members of the JLGB and synagogue and school youth groups. A service was conducted by the Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis. London's mayor has spoken of his concern following a report into the number of anti-Semitic incidents directed at the strictly Orthodox community in areas such as Stamford Hill. 32 incidents have been recorded by the volunteer security group Shomrim in just one month. Sadiq Khan, who'd made zero tolerance on hate crime a top priority, said it was of concern to him and added that the Metropolitan Police had reached out to Haredi leaders to try and raise awareness and confidence. The Minister for the Middle East, the MP Tobias Elwood, has said Britain is very proud of the role it played in the establishment of a Jewish homeland. Mr Elwood's words appear to be a slight shift from statements earlier this year when he said he wouldn't celebrate next year's centenary of the 1917 Balfour Declaration. Mr Elwood was speaking at a Conservative Friends of Israel event. He added that Number 10 was making the celebratory arrangements, which he said were very, very important. A PE teacher at the Jewish Community Secondary School in New Barnet has received a prestigious award for saving the life of one of his pupils. Ashley White performed CPR for 15 minutes on Noah Baron Cohen, a Year 11 pupil who'd had a cardiac arrest after a run. Mr White took instructions from a 999 operator until Noah was taken to Great Ormond Street Hospital. The prize was given to him at the annual Lifesaver Awards run by SADS UK, which stands for Sudden Arrhythmic Death Syndrome. And our final story, the family of a teenage girl who was born with spina bifida has launched an urgent appeal to raise £175,000 for a life-changing operation. 14-year-old Lucy May Beacock, who's from Barnet, has appeared on stage in the West End in the musical Matilda. She has stopped growing and developed scoliosis, which could leave her bent over to one side. The corrective operation Lucy needs has to be done in America. Her family say they're already amazed at how generous the Jewish community has been. That's the news. Sport now. Here's Andrew. Thank you, Viv. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas have met with FIFA officials to look at trying to broker better relations between the two sides' football federations. The two leaders met Tokyo Sexvale, the chairman of FIFA's monitoring committee, which was established in 2015 after the Palestinian FA withdrew its proposal for suspension of the Israel Football Association. Closer to home, Boca Juniors claimed their first win of the season as they came back from 4-0 down to defeat Hartswood Vale 5-4. Manager Sefton Monk said, This win goes out to all those managers and chairmen in Jewish football who fight week in, week out, all summer to keep their club and passion alive for yet another season. And finally, WWE star Bill Goldberg stunned the wrestling world after he beat long-term rival Brock Lesnar in under 90 seconds. 
The legend, who made his name in the 1990s, had retired in 2004 after going 173 matches unbeaten, and beat Brock to end his two and a half year winning streak. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me in the studio to go through it is Richard Ferrer, the editor. Now, Richard, it's just you this week, and we'll explain why in just a moment's time. But let's start off with the front page, shall we? The headline reads, Fears Grow of an Extremist Frenzy in Trump's America. Who are raising concerns and why? Yeah, we're a few weeks away now from the shock election result and only a few weeks away now from, believe it or not, and I still can't, I wake up in cold sweats, President Donald Trump. This was a story that ended up in page three or four and then suddenly found itself on the front page late on press day. The community is clearly very concerned, shocked, chilled even, to quote one community leader, about an extremist upsurge in Donald Trump's America. So we were going to just do a small story. We threw it out there and we asked people to respond. And we were quite overwhelmed with community leaders across the community. I'll name just a few. Olivia Marks Waldman, the chief executive of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. Laura Jana Klausner, who's head of the Reformed Judaism. Karen Pollock, HET, the Community Security Trust. Trust, the Washington Holocaust Museum. I, the list goes on and we couldn't include all the quotes. And to a person, to an organisation, they are all incredibly concerned about the what they call dangerous and intimidating right-wing language that is emanating from a lot of people. And I'm not saying it's Donald Trump himself, but he is certainly enabling, I think, people in the alt-right, the alternative right, and the far-right, even white supremacists, to have the, the courage of their convictions to speak out in a way perhaps that they weren't certainly were never able to under Barack Obama. People are calling it rhetorical violence. Well, this is something that we're going to look at further in the schmooze later on in this edition of The Jewish Views. But it is interesting how people do seem to attribute a rise in hate crimes and anti-Semitic rhetoric with Brexit and also with Donald Trump's election. So it will be a very interesting few years, I'm sure. Middle East minister, very proud of Israel, is the next story that we're going to look at. So let's turn inside the paper. And we heard this a little earlier on in the news with Viv. But let's just remind ourselves what this story is about. Yes, Tobias Elwood, the Middle East minister. And this is obviously a story that's going to be bigger and bigger and louder as the months go on and we head towards next November, the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. Now, the British government have been very backwards about coming forwards on this. They haven't been very vocal on the feeling of the 100th anniversary, something that obviously is very, very important and profoundly important to the Jewish community. Well, this week, of note, Tobias Elwood said that he is proud of and the government is proud of the role played by by Britain in the establishment of a Jewish homeland. And obviously you've got a lot of people, a lot of anti-Zionists that are saying even that Britain should apologise for the mandate, that they should set the record straight and that the mandate was unfair on the indigenous people of the time. So to hear someone unequivocally in such an important role come out and say something like pride is obviously, I think, a really important statement this week. 
And it seems to be quite a stark contrast to what we were just talking about when we were saying about the rise in hate crimes as well. It's interesting, so. isn't it? Because when you think national pride, a lot of people think xenophobia, insular, inward thinking, anti-immigration. It doesn't have to be that way. 17 million people that voted for Brexit don't feel that way. But obviously, it's a slippery slope. And if you, if you take it too far and you become a little bit too jingoistic, obviously, you end up in, in a sphere that I don't think any of us want us to go. Indeed. Well, the final story that we're going to look at the paper, and again, we'll explain in just a moment why it's quite a short paper review this week, is shortlist for the Shoah Memorial. This, is, of course, is going to be the memorial that is to be built at the Palace of Westminster. We learned that earlier on this year. And now the shortlist has been announced for those who are going to potentially be the ones to design it. In the time I've been editor of the paper, it's always struck me a little odd that beyond the Hyde Park, and I couldn't even call it a memorial, it's it's a symbol, we haven't really got a national memorial to the Holocaust in this country. Now, finally, and, and when we were talking about it earlier, I called it one of Cameron's great legacies, is to get together with some of the great and good in the community, some survivors, MPs, etc., and come up with a, a scheme to develop a show memorial in the heart of Westminster, somewhere where people can congregate, a focal point, for commemoration. Now 10 teams have been shortlisted. Each of them will submit their own design and they include Jewish designers like Sir Anish Kapoor and the Israeli designer Ron Arad. These are the the really great and good of the industry. So I'm really excited and and I think it'll be a very proud moment when we see the blueprints and see what hopefully our generation and future generations will have in the centre of the capital. I utterly don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to all the same. What would you like to see personally from the memorial when it's built? Well, I think it needs to be a focal point. It needs to be somewhere people can congregate for introspection, a bit like the Cenotaph, perhaps, in Whitehall. The most beautiful, evocative, it's, this is kinder transport rather than the Holocaust. It's, it's actually in Prague Station, or is about to be unveiled, is a picture of a glass pane with children's hands up on the pane. And you can just imagine the scene taking place in the late 30s as, as parents say goodbye to their children. I break up when just thinking about it when people's uh, parents say goodbye to their children and you can it's just, it's almost the outline of the children's hands something that that really hits you in in, in the gut that also is a place physically that you can stay and spend time I think that is 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 the most important thing simple yet striking yeah. is what we hope for well That's where we're going to leave it for a review of the paper for this week. But Richard, you're not going anywhere just yet. And in fact, we should explain that the paper review is normally recorded at the studios of the Jewish News Office. But this week, we hop over to our other studios at Jewish Care that we sometimes use as well, where we are joined in the studio by Gillian Gold and Risa Rosenbaum. Now, we are going to explain in just a moment why that is the case. But Richard, why are we here? Mitzvah day. And we're sat here in green T-shirts. I have a great collection of Mitzvah Day t-shirts stretching back uh, about five or six years. So just another one to add to the collection. This weekend, the beginning of this weekend and towards the end of next week, there's going to be a lot of events going on. I think an estimated 40,000 people are going to be taking part in Mitzvah Day, a day of of mitzvahs, a day of of good deeds around the community, volunteers of all faiths, led by the Jewish community, doing all sorts of grassroots projects from sort of cooking and collections and present wrapping and helping 
in community centres. And we're basically here to celebrate that and to celebrate the fact that it's it's been recognised across the country. Prime Minister Theresa May hailed it only this week. So it really is, it's the centre point of mitzvahs and, and good deeds in the community each year. Well, Richard, you are going to be doing your mitzvah after we finish recording this section of the programme. But Gillian, let's speak to you first of all. And can we start by just establishing what it is that you do here at Jewish Care? I work in the volunteers department and I primarily deal with special projects, which is groups of volunteers coming into Jewish care to do often one-off days, often with corporates coming in using their employee volunteering days to give to Jewish care. And why are volunteers so crucial to the work that Jewish care do? Volunteers are the heart of our work. It's the volunteers who bring the friendship, the interaction to our service users. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the services that people volunteer on? Well, people volunteer in many different ways. We have people who volunteer weekly, monthly, an hour a year, if it's something in particular like chauffeur blowing. But we need volunteers now, particularly for our Meals on Wheels delivery services in Redbridge and Barnet. This can be very flexible for people because the meals are frozen, so they can be dropped off by mothers between picking their children up from school. We also need volunteers actually to come into our care homes and talk, interact, play board games, sing along with our residents who love to see new faces and really want that friendship. So no amount of volunteering is too big or too small. Perhaps you could just tell some of those listening who might want to get involved how they do. Where do they go? Very simple. Just look on the Jewish Care website, see how to help us, and you'll find volunteering. And you can email us or you can call us. And we'd be delighted to hear from you. And what are Jewish Care doing for Mitzvah Day? Masses. We've got many, many Groups coming into our care homes, day centres, things have been happening this week. We've got Leighton Orient actually going in today to Vine John Rubin's house. So there's lots and lots going on. Let's turn our attention now to one of those volunteers, Rita Rosenbaum, who works for the Casey Shasher Centre for Talking News and Books, which is a subdivision of Jewish Care. Rita, can we start off, first of all, with how long you've been volunteering for Jewish Uh, Care? I've been volunteering for Casey Shasher for nearly 19 years now. Goodness. And I assume that you love what you do or else you wouldn't really stick around. Well, I started off once a week for two hours and I'm now doing five days a week between five and six hours a day. And what exactly is it that you do at the Casey Shasha Centre? Because obviously some of our keener listeners might recognise your dulcet tones from the audio version of the Jewish News, of course. Amongst other things, what else do you do? um, I actually run the audio library now and I started unpacking the wallets in which we send out the CDs and USBs. And by now I'm running the library I record books and I now present Jewish news every Thursday. Excellent. So you are absolutely no strangers to the ears of the Jewish community then? Well, only those who (laughs) want to listen to books and the papers. And just finally, what would you say that you get out of volunteering? Well, it keeps me going, quite frankly. If I hadn't been doing this for 19 years, I probably wouldn't be here anymore because it gets me out of bed in the morning, it gives an interest, keeps the brain going, and 
I've made many telephone friends. Well, you are perfectly welcome to say no if you don't wish me to do so. But am I allowed to divulge and ask the rudest question it is possible to ask a lady? Are you? Are we allowed to know your age? Well, I will in a, about three months, 90. It's absolutely amazing what you do for Jewish care and long may you continue. But that, I'm afraid, is all that we have time for for this particular section. A reminder that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. The annual Ajax Parade took place on Sunday the 20th of November. It's the time when the Association of Ex-Jewish Servicemen and Women honour those members of the community who served their country. Thousands lined Whitehall as the ceremony took place by the Cenotaph. And to find out how this year's event unfolded, I've been speaking to Jacques Weiser from Ajax. And I started by asking him to remind us of the history of Ajax. Well, this uh, association started soon after the end of the First World War and uh, the ceremony at the Cenotaph actually started 1930. It was laid by groups of ladies in memory of those who passed away subsequent to the First World War of their injuries, but primarily those who lost their lives during the First World War, 1418. And as an organization itself, it obviously is responsible for bringing together many different forces. So whether that be members of the army, the RAF, even the police force, I know, march through the parade as well. How is it that it works when all of the different services come together? Who coordinates that? Because obviously the parade itself took place this year on the 20th of November. But how do all of the different forces come together? Well, basically, they're invited. That's the first thing uh, from this office. We extend our invitation to all the current serving military, including, as you say, the uh, Jewish Police Association, cadet forces, and, of course, very much involved are the JLGB, the Jewish Lads and Girls Brigade. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this year's ceremony because for those of us who weren't lucky enough to be there and I have been last year I went I had the great privilege of being there and it was one of the most phenomenal and moving experiences I can honestly say of my life because it just really showed how much the Jewish community as well have sacrificed for the safety of this country. That's absolutely right Uh, the Jewish community although small in numbers I mean first world war there over 55,000 served. A lot were lost, of course. Ditto during the Second World War. The Jewish aspect of citizenship and duty and service to the crown and country, I think, is second to none. Absolutely. Well, the ceremony itself, tell us a little bit about that. What happened? Well, the ceremony uh, obviously brings together not only the current military, as I said earlier on, but also the veterans and their families. The important part to remember is that because of age, the profile has obviously increased tremendously. A lot of family members and sons, grandsons, nephews, uncles, whatever, have joined in. So to some degree, it's become a community parade, as well as the military side, which is what one does at at Whitehall and and specifically at the Cenotaph to honour the dead. 
And how does it work in terms of those members of families who are marching on behalf of ex-Jewish service men and women? Are there any restrictions that says that it has to be the son of, the daughter of, or anything like that? Can anyone do that on their behalf? Absolutely. It is common practice that immediate descendants would wear the medals of their relative on the right breast as against the left breast, which is for those who actually received the honor. There's no restrictions, absolutely not, because we have people marching from communal organizations, the Board of Deputies, we have the um, League of Jewish Women, we have various synagogal bodies, we have a multitude of other members of the community participating. There is a slight age restriction because, of course, notwithstanding the fact that the military is not at the fore so much, it's not easy to have children trying to march or doing the best they can to participate. However, some do come accompanied by family. I have to ask the question that I'm sure is going to be on everybody's lips. It strikes me that one of the biggest problems that you could possibly have with a march consisting of many members of the Jewish community is safety and security in particular. Now, how do you combat security? We work together with the appropriate forces that primarily the Metropolitan, of course, who support the parade in an amazing way. But over and above that, we have the Community Security Trust, the CST, and they had numerous people on duty on Sunday, both at the parade and at the subsequent reunion tea, which takes place after the parade. So we are covered on both fronts. And I must say that the opportunity that is afforded to our community, the Jewish community of the UK, to be able to actually parade and hold a ceremony with a lot, if not the majority of it in Hebrew, as a service at the Cenotaph is quite amazing. It's something that was afforded us by King George V. And we hold onto that very dearly. I'm not surprised because if you think about it in terms of pro rata, the community, as you rightly identify in this country, is considerably smaller than many other minorities. Yet it really is a true testimony to just how we are able to make a loud noise if we want to, because there aren't any other minorities, to the best of my knowledge, who march by the cenotaph in the same way. Well, the only time they might march part is when they uh, have protest marches, whereas here we show our affinity to Queen and country and also citizenship in terms of what we feel is right and proper and correct to highlight that we live in the United Kingdom in a free and democratic society. How does it make you feel being such an intricate part of Ajax? Because I can tell in the way you talk about it that you are immensely proud of the work the organization does. Absolutely. And uh, the association as an organization has its tentacles in many, many other areas. We were delighted and pleased, as we have over many years, to have representatives from overseas as well, including France, Gibraltar, Israel, and elsewhere within the uh, the Commonwealth, if you like. But my pride is that when I'm standing there and I see these veterans and their families marching past, walking, sometimes slowly, or in a wheelchair, I have a frisson, as they would say in the country where I come from. Um, <laughs> en français. <laughs> en français, well, in my case, Belgium, anyway. But it's, it's true, you, you, you feel this 
pride of being Jewish and also the fact that if it weren't for some of the sacrifices made by these uh, soldiers, and I hasten to add the women who participated not only in the First World War as nurses and others, but in the Second World War were dropped behind enemy lines and everything, a lot of us wouldn't be here. Jacques Weiser from Ajax talking to me there about this year's parade, which took place on the 20th of November. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Kate will be joined by actress Kim Ismay and lawyer Denise Lester. They'll be discussing the rise in anti-Semitism attributed to the political shocks of 2016. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Louisa Gutt from Hannah about the work her organisation does to help infertile couples in the community. But first, artist Rebecca Frankel-Rodowski will be exhibiting her latest works at Hampstead Gardens Suburb Gallery at Fellowship House on Thursday the 1st of December. Her works deal with universal philosophic themes. Her latest series, Genesis and Shekhinah, are abstract in nature and deeply reflect the influences of Jewish and Eastern mysticism, mythology and folklore. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more for us by speaking to Rebecca. Kate started by asking her to tell us what inspires her as an artist. I was raised and brought up very strong Jewish traditions. I went to a Jewish school and from a very little girl I was raised with the beautiful stories of Genesis and creation and all the stories of how we got here. And they do influence my work very much subliminally, both subliminally and in in fact figuratively also. Are you classically trained as, a, as an artist? So that's a good question. I actually, yes, I am. I came to art fairly late in life. It wasn't really offered as a serious topic in my school that I went to. But later in life, it was actually during the time when I had my three young children, I was really searching for a way to channel my love of art. I came across a class, it was a private class, and this famous artist took me under his wing. His name is Israel Zohar. He's a Russian-born artist. He has painted, among others, Princess Diana. He's very illustrious, and he paints in the style of the old masters. So he taught me to paint in the realist, figurative style of the old masters. And that was a wonderful thing. But it's very hard work, and I like to have fun with my art. So um, during the later classes, he let me use flow and colour, and he just showed me how to really use my own flow in painting, and that's what I've come to to be doing now in this latest series. It's very different than anything I've done before. So. Did you, as a, as a child, did you want to paint? Or was it Always. I mean, I was told off the whole time in school for drawing when I shouldn't be and had pens and pencils confiscated. And even, I mean, I was actually a corporate lawyer when I went to law school and I did my exams. All my notes were literally filled with <laughs> sketches of St. Paul's Cathedral <laughs> instead of listening to the tutors. So, yeah, very much. So it's been with me all my life. It's an amazing change, yeah. isn't it? Because from, from being a corporate lawyer, which is so, I suppose you can be imaginative in your answers, but it's not artistic in Yeah, way, I mean, it? you can only get creative. <laughs> when you're defending someone but only within very strict parameters but my work is also quite structural I think I have a very analytical brain and so you do see that does come through in my work and going back to the Jewish themes you we, we have all these questions as Jews I and mean, that's what we do isn't it we question and Always, how yeah. do we how do you express those questions because they're, they're very often they're non-pictorial or you imagine that they're not well, it's interesting, but there's something called synesthesia, which means that there are certain people who, when they hear music, they see things, they see colour. And when I have an idea, I see form, I see things in colour. Colour means different things to different people. Oh, but like it's... people who paint the landscape of pie? Yes, 
I mean, absolutely. I have a friend who paints and she draws on very mathematical themes because she's a mathematician and her shapes are very surreal in form, but they're definitely, the mathematics does come through. And I think it's fascinating. It's a fascinating topic that, you know, art is somewhere where you can express things that aren't really, you can't really express with words. And That's such fun. a lovely yes. idea. Yeah. My, my mother always has this thing. She thinks of days of the week in colour. Wow. Which is a what very... What colour is Tuesday? Well, she will always be very consistent. I mean, you know, and they're not even just blue. It'll be sort of a shade of blue. So I do understand the, the synesthesia. Yeah. What sort of form do your thoughts take if it was about death or togetherness or love or, or, or these themes? How do, how do you see them? Well, it's interesting. The different colours definitely represent different energies for me. But I start off with a palette of uh, very vivid paints. I like to use pure colour as much as I can, as I love the work of Dufy and Chagall, very influenced by the Fauvistes and their use of very pure, raw colour. And I just really go with the flow. I see how I'm feeling. Certain colours I'm drawn to on different days. Some days my paintings are very dark. And sometimes I think they're going to be very bleak because I'm thinking something bleak. And in fact, it's a riot of colour. And it's a very organic process. Are they pictures of people? Is it something that that another person who didn't know you would recognise as a form? Interesting. Well, some of my pictures do contain figurative forms and some of them are faces. In my latest series, there's one on creating space and it's about communion. It's about Shrina, which is actually... Shrina is in, in Hebrew, it means presence. It also refers to God. And there is a very much a contemporary movement towards spirituality and enlightenment, where people are encouraged to be mindful and to be present in the moment. And I think therein lies the essence of godliness and who we are is really about going within. And that's conveyed by, in some of my pictures, by a face. And there is actually a face there, but it's a very weird face. It's a very Picasso-esque face. It's broken up. And there are two faces in the one face because it's when you're talking to someone else and you're communicating with someone else, you are communicating with them, but also with yourself. It's like a mirror. And I'm fascinated by that concept. And in fact, I read something recently in Jewish literature. I don't remember who it was that said this, but one of the commentaries said on the two angels that are on the ark, the Kruvim, that God rested between them, the Shekhinah rested between them. And why? Why would God rest between those two angels? Because God rests where there is communication between two people in that space. Mm. And that's a very lovely concept. So that sort of does come into my thought process. Lovely. And do you ever get, I I know writers get writer's block, but there is such a thing as artist block. Oh my God, absolutely, always. (laughs) And I find it really helpful to go for a walk. And I love nature. And when I come back, I'm literally, I can't wait to just get the brushes out and start painting. And especially I live near the Heath and Kenwood. So that's just stunning. So whatever the weather, I'm out there in my Wellington boots. And there's nothing that stops you from painting? There's, there's not a, a, a mood or um, a type of thing? You just say, actually, I'm having a painting holiday for a while. Yeah, no, d- that definitely happens. And then I have literally an urge to paint and then I'm compelled and I paint for a whole week solid. And then again, I do take a break. Yes, very much. But you're not having a break at the moment. You're having your first show. Tell yes. me a bit about that show. Okay, so this show is, it's a few different series together. There's one called Genesis, which is about the seven days of creation and my take on the planets and the different forms that evolved. So it's very colourful. It's very fun. And then there's another series, which again, I was referring to about Shrina and one about communication and creating space. And so. can anybody come to this? Yes, absolutely. It's in Fellowship it? House on Willowfield Way. 
and it, there's a gallery in there and I'm going to do the opening night is going to be next Thursday so that's very exciting so do come along I hope, hope to I see you I will do absolutely please bring friends there's going to be cocktails cupcakes and all sorts of nonsense but it'll be a party I, I want it to be fun and you said that you're giving 10% of your yes uh, of the um, hopefully um, if I can get my act together on time I'm hoping to have cards for sale for those that want Christmas cards or Hanukkah cards then they can buy cards and prints and the proceeds 10% will go to Gisharon. Rebecca Frankel-Rodowski talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about her forthcoming exhibition, which takes place at the Hampstead Garden Suburb Gallery at Fellowship House on Thursday the 1st of December. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze, a reminder that we now live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds, and of course we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now, the beginning of November saw National Infertility Week. Chana is the community's charity which helps infertile couples help achieve their ultimate family goal. Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Louisa Gutt from Chana, and Diana started by asking Louisa to tell us about the history of the charity. Chana was started 22 years ago by four ladies in think they were from Stanford Hill who were young and struggling to get pregnant young married didn't know where to turn to get advice and help both medically and emotionally and they sat around a kitchen table and very corny Hannah was born and since then it's grown into an organization which has at its heart an esteemed medical panel, all the top names in reproductive health. We have our own in-house scientific advisor. We have a helpline that's manned by both male counsellors and female counsellors, and people can come and gain support via accessing those counselling services. They can ask questions anonymously if they feel better doing so on the helpline. That we have presentations, educational presentations. And I'm glad to say, in its 22 years, that we know about 639 babies have been born. Oh, that's a wonderful statistic. Which is wonderful. (laughs) Yes. Um, It's probably more, actually, because quite a lot of people come to our educational presentations anonymously. And, Louisa, what's your involvement with the charity? I'm sort of project manager, community development. As with all Jewish charities, I do quite a few things. But my role is to make sure that the outreach is as good as it can possibly be. So as many people know about Hana as possible, you know, our website has grown. We can see we're getting much more traffic to the website. We don't necessarily know who it's from. Calls to our helpline have increased. Our T-Sembers have grown. 
I want to ask you about this just a little bit later on. I'm interested in the difference, if I can call it that, of a support group for infertility that is specifically geared towards Jewish people. Now, presumably, they will help with halachic law, Jewish law. And in what other ways is it different from any other infertility clinic or support group? To be honest, I don't know. And I and I think Jewish people are very different. Some Jewish people would deliberately choose not to come to a Jewish organisation. All I can say is from a confidentiality point of view, Hannah is, I, in my role, have no idea who calls the helpline. So even people working within the organisation don't know who's accessing the services necessarily. I think certainly in terms of when we see a spike to helpline is after, let's say, Rosh Hashanah festivals where maybe childlessness feels particularly painful for couples. You know, they've been to shul, maybe somebody's asked a difficult question, when are you going to start having a family, that type of thing. surrounded by families. Surrounded by families, Mm. especially sort of children-orientated festivals after Purim. Quite. We get also a big spike to the helpline. So I think some people choose to call a Jewish charity because they feel somebody will understand from that point of view. Right. And then other people will deliberately not turn to us because they don't want anybody in the community. What they perceive, they don't want to own up to it. Right. That's very interesting you should say that because I was thinking it was started, founded in, what, the early 90s. Yeah. Now, 30 years before that, or even 40 years before that, there was a tremendous stigma around being infertile. It was something that you wouldn't admit to and that made you feel miserable and very isolated. Is that still the case, in fact? Or are people much more... I was going to say it sounds as if people are much more open about admitting it now, but you say a lot of people are anonymously calling the helpline. I think, it again, it depends on your personality. I think what we're finding now is... There is still a stigma. Is there? Uh, undoubtedly, there's still mm. a stigma. I, I do think it's lessening with things like social media. People are much more aware of organisations that can help. Certainly from, from my perspective, what I found is after, please God, a nice outcome. Yes. People are definitely more willing to talk about it. Good. So if you've had a baby. Yes you can maybe at that stage talk about how difficult it was to get to that baby. Right. If you're still on that journey, I think people still feel stigma. And your annual event called December is coming up. Tell us a bit about that. Well, it's a December tea party fest and it's encouraging as many people in the community to have tea parties to raise awareness and funds for Hannah. It's a little bit like the Macmillan Absolutely. coffee mornings. Absolutely, like it that. is, yeah. yes. It started four years ago and each year it's grown, reached more people, raised more money and we hope in its own way broken down a bit 
more stigma. What we found is, you know, when women get together over a cup of tea and a piece of cake, they're far more likely to open up and chat about personal experiences. Because they don't feel under stress. That's right. And and hopefully mm. as well, it's educational. So we've also found that from even older generation, they've realised that maybe some of their questions to their own family, you know, are, are inappropriate. Are inappropriate. How do people get in touch if they do want to hold a tea semba? How like, do they find out? If about you them? go to our Hannah website, which is hannah.org.uk, and that's C H A N A. It is right. There is sign up instructions on the website. Louisa Good from Hana talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about the work her organisation does to support infertility in the community. And if you would like more information or indeed you think that Hana could help you and your family, then do go to their website, which is Hana, C-H-A-N-A dot org dot UK. You're listening to The Jewish Views and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Kate Fulton and me today is actress Kim Ismay and lawyer Denise Lester. And the subject today is based on what we heard in the news with Viv earlier on. London's Mayor, Sadiq Khan, has spoken of his concern following a report into the number of anti-Semitic incidents directed at the strictly Orthodox community in areas such as Stamford Hill. Many have attributed a rise in hate crimes to the political shocks of 2016, such as the vote to leave the European Union and President-elect Donald Trump's victory. The question is, do we associate a rise in anti-Semitism for the same reasons, or has it always been there? Kim, let's start with you. Do you feel this year's political shockwaves have anything to do with the rise in hate crimes? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. I think it's not only made more of them, it's actually made them more visible. It's given people who are like that and who would do that, it's almost like it's given them permission to be open in their hatred. I mean, during the 70s, I remember there was Rock Against Racism and there was the Anti-Nazi League because there was a big resurgence in hate crimes. Skinheads were particularly virulent at the time. But it all petered out and everybody put a lid on it almost. And I think it's always been there. But the recent events, which has left the world reeling slightly, I think it's made it a very dangerous and... The danger for me is the fact that people feel it's okay to give a Sig Heil. There are pictures of people at dinners giving a Nazi salute. There was a party recently in America to celebrate Donald Trump's, or him being president-elect, and at the end they were shouting Heil Donald. Oh. Denise, do you uh, agree with It was this? awful. <laughs> no, I don't actually. And there's all, and uh, Clive, there's a curious serendipity and prescience that happens when I come on this programme because bearing in mind I didn't know about this topic and I've actually ha- directly experienced an anti-Semitic incident which I reported to the police and this is pre-Brexit. I was sitting 
on a Northern Line train bound for Edgware and I'd been in Surrey, which I'd say is a hardly Jewish area, coming back and connecting, (laughs) connecting, lovely area, connecting back through Camden Town. So I'm on the Northern Line and I sit down and I happen to sit down and I was absolutely horrified and offended because etched into the seat was a swastika in the actual armrest, the black armrest. And that was clearly, it was in a disabled seat. So it was clearly designed to cause maximum offence for the elderly or for somebody who's pregnant and distressed. The British Transport Police got involved and I actually got them to take the train carriage out of service and tape up the seat and I actually said that they needed to look at the footage because they do have footage on each individual trains and I know that because professionally I've acted in connection with the 7-7 bombing so you know I have a heightened knowledge and I pushed for this and there was a minimisation and the lesson of this is that it's it's been there. I, what I think there was was a placidness and a tolerance which London thank goodness is is famous for and it seemed to have gone away. Anti-Semitism seemed to have gone away. But certainly professionally, when I was in the early 90s and working for a firm that's no longer in existence, a colleague said to me in connection with the matter, well, he's not a Levine, you know. And I was absolutely astonished by that. So it's hidden. It's veiled. And yeah, but now it's yeah, come that's, out, that's, hasn't that's, it? And now was, it's come that's out. That's what I said. That's what I said. Um, but yeah. it's, not Bre- it's not Brexit. It's not just because of Brexit. No, it's we, more, we, not we, so much we, Brexit. Um, it's more Donald Trump. And I also remember I also remember being at a talk given by an illustrious speaker at the Inns of Court in connection with human trafficking and the term mm. Faganism was used. And <sighs> I stood up in front of about 400 people mm. and said that that caused me offence as a Jew. I had, people were astonished, it should not be adopted as it's not a term that's a generic term, it applied in connection with child trafficking. There was an attempt to spin it and that's absolutely, it was just horrible, it was just horrible. So it's there uh, and it's insidious. Oh it is, but it always has been. People fear and mistrust that which is not them. But it is, it is coming out more now because mm. a few years ago, if you went into a synagogue, you, you didn't have all these guards and people standing Absolutely. there. And you're not told at the end of a service, please go out as quickly as possible, don't congregate in, in outside the synagogue. Uh, so it is, in my opinion, it is getting worse. Mm. I, I agree with you. And the, and the worst of it is, it is that the Jewish community historically has had a value set of being good and assimilating with the host nation. We're not troublemakers and we're remarkably tolerant, but we shouldn't also isolate ourselves. And Kate, what do you think? Well, it's definitely anti-Semitism seems to be, does seem to be more out there. I was told that recently a big bookshop in London had the protocols back on sale and yes the person that i that saw it uh, spoke to me and said so what do i do and i immediately said well you go and speak to the the owner of the bookshop and it was a big chain and this was not something that was hidden it was just on the shelf and the manager came down and and they did take it off so that seemed okay two weeks later it's back on again so that's that's one thing but going back to the idea of a rise in anti-semitism it feels that it's more out there because I feel people have become more emboldened. They've become yeah, able to... Exactly. They feel so, Because they sit there and they get... And I was only talking about this last night, actually. 
they get their news on their little phone. Most people are not watching. <clears throat> and what they do is they sign up to either fake news website or they find these peculiar websites where there are bunches of cronies saying the same thing as them. Yep. And if enough people are in nodding agreement with you, saying more and more and more the same thing, you become emboldened because you, you normalise that sort of horrible hate speech. That's exactly and what it, it is. Feels, it's the normalisation it of it. It feels OK. And it's yeah. just... A very hard thing to have to to realise that there is so many different people out there that that will create their own almost their own broadcast channels or newspapers. It's very interesting to see all this because I've been lived much longer than any of you three, and I can remember when I was young, very young. The only time that I ever came across anti-Semitism was when I sat in a studio with a woman, most unpleasant woman I may say, who sudden and she knew I was Jewish. She suddenly turned round to me and she said, I live in a beautiful flat in Marylebone High Street. Unfortunately, my flat is above that of a nasty, fat Jewish man and his fat Jewish wife and their even fatter Jewish son, and they make me sick. And I was so shocked and so young and she was so senior, I didn't say a word and I've been sorry ever since. But that was the only anti-Semitic comment that I ever heard or ever experienced until quite recently. So I think there's mm. been a great change and I think that's one of the reasons why Trump has won in America and that's one of the reasons why the majority against staying in the common market. Was. I think... One of the things that we have to guard against is I mean, we're all talking about complacency and the fact that people behave in a certain way because other people allow them to or don't speak up enough. Political correctness had gone so far that we were all afraid to say something about someone's behaviour if they belong to a certain group for fear of being called racist because we were tarnishing the whole group with their wrongdoing. And I think... You're right about that, because recently... Now it's swinging. Well, not recently, but some little while ago, I said to my daughter that I'd met an, a, a young doctor who was absolutely charming. I said, he was a black doctor. Mm. And she said, oh, you can't say that? Now, what was wrong with saying that? I said he was a white doctor or a pink doctor or a green doctor. But people were taking it, were being much too <clears throat> careful. Yeah, it's, just, it's very difficult, because you have to be. I mean, there's but, no... There's no no harm, I think, in referring to somebody's perhaps ethnicity in passing. It's when the adjective, which was the continuum with your case, Clive, fat Jewish, fat Jewish, fat Jewish, and I don't like them or I hate them. Mm. I'm going to pick up and just say, of course, Trump is, is, is seen to be pro-Jewish as well. But there is this... Well, there is, converted, uh, isn't she? Uh, she's got a very, and she's very a religious daughter, Jewish daughter. Uh, but, you know, I think that, yes, absolutely. And... I think we have a collective and individual responsibility as Jews of all shapes and sizes, and particularly those who are non-Orthodox, to actually be loud and proud of who we are, because we have a rich history and ethnicity in so many ways. And I, and I do not want to be defeated personally by any anti-Semites. The swastika, if I hadn't have made the noise, then there wouldn't have been the action taking and removing that armrest out of service and somebody else could have taken even more offence. And I actually think that it was the Chinese police officer 
and the other non-Jewish police officers who took me more seriously, which also leads me to my other point is the non-Jewish community and people who are decent and have a decent sense of values, we need to look to and we do look to for, for support and help. I mean, there are great people out there, such as um, John Mann, who really put himself in the far, you know, in the verbal firing line recently, and other such good people who really want to keep our society tolerant. But our society is becoming less tolerant. This is obvious, I think. Don't you think, Kate? I do. I mean, look at look at the the, the whole Joe Cox. Horrific. Well, it is. That's. I exactly mean, you know, right. when you think about it, I still can't quite believe it. And and mm. what what was what is, was found since since he was found guilty? What was actually found in his room and what came out? And some of the letters that he'd written. And again. You can imagine people are starting to, as long as he doesn't start becoming some sort of cult figure, which frightens the hell out of me, that could be a thing. Now, this is the whole point, that that wouldn't have been a big case a few years ago, would it? Put Britain first, he's saying. Yes. And but wouldn't even be saying that. But England, there's, a very, there's a very good play that was on at the National a few years ago. England people, very nice, and it dealt with the waves of immigration into London. And uh, we're broadcasting from London, which is a fabulous melty pot with many different waves of immigration from mm. the Irish and Irish Catholics and Protestants, the Italians, and in, I'm just in terms of religion, Catholics, etc. And now everyone from the Indian subcontinent and, and, and Muslims as, as well. And I say that because people have been remarkably tolerant. But to get back, it's now... You know, being British does not mean being racist. I mean, in my view. But Kim, you must, you, you've yeah. noticed it, haven't you? You've yes, noticed I it. Have. Have, the English are becoming less tolerant. Yes, I think so. I think we're. People are generally becoming less tolerant. People are. Because they don't know how to interact. We were talking earlier on about everything being social media based. And I know we've talked about this before, Clive. Everything is now social media. You can get the answer to everything you want now this minute on your smartphone. Whether it's true or not, whether it's verified or not, whether veracity is, is not in question. You people can get information. Check, do they? they don't check. My sister was saying she, you, people just retweet things and they just put them up on Facebook and go, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. Well, hang on a second. Is it true? Or are you part of the group of people who are just putting out fake or incorrect news? But we are becoming less able to interact face-to-face -face with people. And because this interaction is becoming less and less the norm, then our reactions when we do do something are heightened and a little bit disjointed. I think where it's arguably significant that people feel more comfortable and using social media and, and, and you know, it's a cowardly tactic as well. You're invisible is on then, and it is, is by posting anti-Semitic yeah. stuff, by setting up websites rather than the horrible face-to-face -face thing because also they know that there could be a fear of prosecution. Yes. In terms of, and also, you have the hate preachers out there who are very careful in terms of their rhetoric as well. So arguably, because the media is more unregulated, it is a tool for anti-Semitism yes. and other absolutely well, anti horrible, any horrible views. Well, sadly, I think we're going to have to leave the discussion because our time is up. But thank you all very much indeed to our guests, actress Kim Esme and lawyer Denise Lester.
Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue. This week's parsha is Chayesara. It contains Abraham's quest for a wife for Isaac. As you will recall, Abraham sends his servant Eliezer back to his family in Haran. On arrival, Eliezer stops at a well and prays for a sign. He wants someone to offer him water and water for his camels too. This is not a random token. Such humanity and hospitality would be ideal traits to find in a wife for Isaac. Eliezer sets out a precise script of what he will say and how she should respond. As you'll recall, Rebecca comes and when she's asked by Eliezer for water, she rushes to give him and his camels to drink. A close reading of the text shows that Rebecca doesn't precisely fulfill Eliezer's terms. She doesn't offer to water his camels. She just goes ahead and does it. There is a problem in asking God for a sign when we are not sure if it has been entirely fulfilled. Nonetheless, upon learning that Rebekah is indeed a relative of Abraham, Eliezer quickly blessed God who has not withheld chastov amito, his kindness or truth from his master. We learn from this that Eliezer was completely satisfied. Clearly, he was far more interested in the traits of humanity and hospitality than in the minutiae of the omen. But perhaps, more significantly, we see that it is far more important to display acts of chesed, of kindness, than to offer them. Eliezer was far more impressed by someone who watered his camels and delivered beyond what was strictly necessary, and by someone whose actions exceeded their words. Eliezer was grateful for someone who didn't seem to measure out or calculate the precise extent of their generosity. We had drawn this comparison in last week's parsha when Abraham offered to fetch the visiting angels a morsel of bread, but rushed to prepare cakes and meat. The picture is completed, and a contrast is drawn when Rebecca offers Eliezer a bed for the night. The Torah alerts us to one important detail before we are told that Laban, Rebecca's brother, rushed out to the well to invite Eliezer in. We are told that Laban's hospitality was triggered by seeing the weighty golden ring and bracelets that Eliezer had given to his sister. Laban was drawn in by the bling. This episode becomes translated into a halacha. In Pirkei Avot, we're instructed that Shammai used to say, speak little but do much, and receive all people with a cheerful countenance. The expression in Pirkei Avot for receive all people is kabel kol ha'adam, even though kabel kol ha'adam can mean receive everyone, it literally means receive the whole person. Laban had betrayed that his interest was only in Eliezer's affluence. He wasn't interested in the whole man, just in the contents of his saddlebags. Of course, when we begin to compartmentalize people and become discriminating and selective in the way we receive them, it is not just that we don't receive the whole person. We diminish ourselves in the process. It is when we are wholesome and wholehearted and we do not hold ourselves back that God is best able to lavish upon us and not withhold his own kindness and his truth. Thank you to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue with our thought for the week there. 
And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Jacques Weiser, Rebecca Frankel-Rodowski, Louisa Gutt. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Kim Ismay and Denise Lester. And of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to thank the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>